We're in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians is a letter written by Paul to a number of churches in the Roman province of Galatia, churches of God, that were being upset by teaching that was coming through from those who said they were Christians, but also said that it was necessary to follow the things of Judaism to be absolutely certain that you're a Christian. And that was starting to disturb them. So Paul wrote his letter uh, to this group of churches to tell them that that was not what salvation was about. That the freedom that God had secured for those who put their faith in Christ Jesus and who were indwelt by the Holy Spirit was experienced by faith. Faith alone, in the grace of God alone, in Christ alone. And his letter... Uh, for us in our Bibles, is divided up into six chapters. So when we're in chapter 5, uh, logically it means that uh, Paul is rising to his conclusion and is uh, trying to bring it all together. And the portion we're going to consider today is going to do just that. He's going to show us in the section that we've got that what freedom in Christ really is by actually showing us what freedom in Christ is not. He's also then going to tell us, as he was telling the churches in Galatia, how that freedom in Christ is experienced by believers. And what is required of believers, i.e. you and me, if we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is required of us to enjoy that freedom for which Christ died and lives again to bring us into So let's take our reading. I'm going to go back up to verse 6 just for that one verse and then down to verse 13 after that. So Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. The margin reading there is probably closer to the Greek, which says, you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... Verse 18, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy. Drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
the end of our reading for today. Paul has been warning the saints in the churches of God in Galatia about succumbing to this teaching that says that their faith in Christ was not enough for true freedom and salvation. That they had to do other things and particularly for the men it involved being circumcised. A painful experience that they would have to go through that would be an external demonstration of their adherence to the code of Judaism which was a thing that God had given to Israel. But what Paul has done thus far in this letter is say that Christ had come to fulfill all that the law was pointing forward to. The law could never save and nobody could ever keep the law to be saved. But Christ, the perfect man, God the Son who took on human flesh, was the one who was sinless in everything, who kept the law perfectly and then gave himself as the sacrifice for sinners and for sin on the cross. And then it was by faith in all that he had achieved that sinners are brought into the freedom of God, of knowing that sins are forgiven and that we live a new life. He says to the people in the churches here in Galatia that succumbing to the flesh, now we just need to say something about what he means by the flesh. That, that's a Greek word that's used many times in the New Testament. And normally it would speak of, of what is tangible about our bodies, that which we and animals would have, that which you can touch and, and damage or handle, whatever. But here, Paul is using it, as he does in other places, in a different sense. And he means it to speak of the human nature that is corrupted and weakened by sin. That's his sense of the word, the, or the words, the flesh. It's one word in the Greek. We have it as two, the flesh. Maybe some of your Bibles do actually have sinful nature, which might help you to understand it. But the, the word is related to, to that which is tangible. So Paul is taking us back to thinking about what we are in essence. And as sinners, the flesh is there and it remains in believers. The nature that is corrupted and weakened by sin. F.F. Bruce, uh, New Testament scholar, and commentator says it's the power that opposes God and enslaves human beings. So it's that which is set against God but actually enslaves those who are set against God. And that's a good description of what it means to be a sinner. And Paul's been saying thus far in this letter that if you succumb to thinking that you are going to have to bring something in order to be saved to impress God... You're succumbing to the flesh because actually you're hostile to the things that God has said. Because God has said, you're saved through faith in my son and what he has achieved. If you want to bring something to the party, then actually you're opposed to me. That's what Paul has been reminding the people in Galatia and he's been reminding us of the same. But instead Paul is wanting us to see that there's this freedom life. He's wanting them to see and us to see, of course. This freedom life that is a lifestyle that is energised by the Holy Spirit who indwells every genuine believer. That is a truth that Paul has already told us about. Galatians 4 verse 6 says after the, at the right time that God sent his son so that he might be the saviour. In verse 6, Galatians 4 verse 6 says God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. 
The Spirit who calls out Abba Father. So the Holy Spirit of God. God himself comes to take up residence in the life of a believer. Who sees that God the Father is able to welcome a sinner back as a forgiven sinner. Through faith in God the Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross. The Holy Spirit then secures that and guarantees that for eternity. And takes up residence. And therefore, life is different. Life is transformed. It's changed. I want us to think today about how this freedom life, as I'm calling it, lived in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Just stop for a moment and think about the reality that God comes and lives with us and in us. That sort of freedom life releases us from slavery to the ego and selfish and manipulative behaviours. It sets us free, releases us from the slavery of how we think we appear to other people and how we are treated by them. And that results in all sorts of whether we feel good or bad about ourselves. It releases us from the slavery of pursuing fulfillment and reputation and success and experiences and possessions and in unhealthy relationships. It releases us from the crushing and exhausting burden of trying to save ourselves every single day. Paul is taking the Galatians and us through this step by step saying, look, if you succumb to this teaching, you're falling away from where you were, enjoying a life that is transformed because of who Christ is and because of God having come and taken up residence in your life to change you, you're succumbing to this again. You're giving in to the flesh nature which is opposed to God and it's going to end up with your own and collective destruction. Paul does not mince his words in what we've read. In Galatians 5 verse 6, we read that to, to show that Paul says that circumcision and uncircumcision, he actually gets to a conclusion point, says circumcision and uncircumcision, whether you're circumcised or not really doesn't matter. It's, it's what's in the heart. It's, it's what you are in yourself. Whether you are at heart still that unregenerate, untransformed, unsaved person who has rejected what God has offered in Christ, or whether you're one who has received it by the gift of faith that God has granted. And that is evidenced then in external things. So to be circumcised is an external thing which is where you're trying to declare, not to God, though you might think you're doing so, but to other people, because they're part of the group that are circumcised, you're trying to declare to them, yeah, I'm saved. But actually Paul is saying, if you do that, you've really not got what salvation is about by grace. You've not realised that the only person before whom um, you have to give account is God himself. The end of that verse, he says, the only thing that counts, uh, the NIV puts it this way, is faith expressing itself through love. The Greek is more condensed and actually says faith working through love. So it's an active faith that is working through love. 
And he's going to say what that love looks like. Listen to David King's talk from last week for more on this. But Paul is saying that the heart that is transformed by the grace of God and brought into this freedom of no longer being slaves to all those things that I've already listed can then live entirely in love for God and love for neighbour at the same time. And that's what faith is. Faith in Christ brings a person to that. The transformed affections of the heart which are now turned towards love of God because he has demonstrated that to us. And then the resultant shift in desires within us changes our attitudes towards ourselves and also towards other people. And that results in different behaviours. Behaviours of the Christian, the genuine Christian, should be evidently different from the behaviours of those who are not. And Paul takes us into a warning statement in a moment and says, let you be careful how you judge those that are not, because it's not that easy. Because you'll have some that we would stand back and you would judge and say, oh, look at their lives, aren't they sinners? But also in that list, there are some whose attitudes of heart are more subtle. And they're maybe the religious good people, but they're not trusting in the faith or not trusting by faith in the grace of God. And they're no better off than those who might brazenly show the effects of sin in their lives. That's why we go down to verse 13. Um, Paul is saying that this freedom, if you're saying you have this freedom in Christ, what God has brought you into is not a freedom that will indulge the flesh. So that human nature that is corrupted by sin and is set against God, that still remains in us. We, we are acquitted in God's estimation of sin when Christ died on the cross for us. We're justified. But our, we're not transformed completely in this life. There still is the sinful nature that still resides and as we'll see is in conflict with the spirit of God who is within us. Let's not kid ourselves that we suddenly have become perfectly holy in this life. In God's estimation when he looks on Christ and his perfections, those who are in Christ, he views them as there for eternity. But then there is the expectation that those who are in Christ will exhibit the reality of what that means. And that's the challenge for us. So in 5 verse 13, he's saying that this freedom, Galatians, that you're claiming you've got now, um, it's inconceivable that you would then indulge the flesh. So don't succumb to this false teaching that is coming in that you need to do something else to be saved or to join this group of people who are saying they're better than everybody else, which is essentially what was happening. Instead, in verse 13, he says to them, let me find it here, serve one another humbly in love is the way the NIV puts it. The NIV have softened it. It actually means serve one another as slaves. That's what it means. That you would give yourself to be a slave. Now we have to understand slaves in the, the context of the time in which this was written. This is not related to slavery in more modern history, which is an horrific thing. We're not talking about that. We're talking about slaves who would willingly have given themselves to the service of a household, knowing that they were going to be well looked after uh, by the owner of that household. 
And they would then serve out of love. That was the sense of it. But Paul is saying the same thing. That this freedom that God will bring us into through faith in Christ. Transforms us to the point where we're, we're loving the fact that we're coming to serve other people. That's what Christianity is about. The reality of a changed life. Now this can only come about whenever we realise that before the only court that matters, we have a right standing. That's what God's grace brings us into through faith in Christ. It's no longer about me having to gain approval and reputation and accolades and trying to achieve some sort of status before other people or before God. Because I've been accepted by the highest court, the highest standard in the universe and beyond, God himself. Because Christ is there. It's Christ's perfections that stand for me. It's not me. And God is the highest court. Do you get it? So us bothering about how we look to one another, that would then hold us back and the flesh nature would then turn us inwards and try and make us look better towards one another and would do things out of selfish motive. There's no need for that. The Christian who has been set free from trying to achieve that sort of status in life through faith in Christ is then going to be freed up to love God and to love others. That's the evidence, Paul is saying, of what true faith is. But he also says that serving like this, as that sort of loving slave, recognising that everybody else is to benefit from my life, is only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts. So he mentions life by the Spirit, and he contrasts that with life in the flesh. Now life by the Spirit in this section here is, is a life that's lived in and by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. God himself has come to be with us. The power of the Almighty with us. And that life is lived for others. So if you're one who claims to live by the Spirit because the Spirit of God is in you, Paul is saying you're living for other people. You're living for God and for others. The two are tandem. But life in the flesh, Paul is saying, on the other hand, is life, in a sense, in its natural state, riddled with sinfulness, which is an opposition to God and enslaves us to certain behaviours. And it's that sort of life where we're trying, out of our own limited and misguided and puny power resources, to live for ourselves, for reputation, approval, satisfaction and achievement and so on. Now, Paul goes straight to it. In verse 15 of Galatians 5, he says that people who live in the flesh, that consequence or the consequences of that sort of life in any social setting, and a social setting is a church setting too, or a church setting is a social setting, that sort of attitude where you're falling back into living out of your own resources for yourself rather than out of God's resources for God and for others is going to result in what? Biting and devouring one another 
and the destruction of one another. Do you see what Paul was trying to guard? Paul was trying to guard what was so precious to God, which was the unity that was in each church of God and the unity between those churches of God. In that region in Galatia and how they were linked to other churches. Because he could see that there was going to be an, a disastrous explosion of destructive force in each church that would result in factions. Not only that, it would result in some churches maybe just exploding and not continuing. And maybe even that whole area being so overwhelmed by this and succumbing to this that they would no longer be considered as in partnership with other churches of God in unity with them. Paul is fearful that they're succumbing to the flesh because this, this teaching that was coming that says, look, you need to do this to be saved is attractive to the flesh nature. Naturally, it heightens the excitement of oh, I can do something here to be saved. So coming to that, pursuing salvation by works is only going to result in destructive division in the churches of God in Galatia. And in fact, it's already started to do it. It's obvious that the same principles apply today. As a church, we need to embrace again the grace of God. Because there's biting and there's devouring and there's destruction. And do you see where it comes from? It comes from the individual. It comes from the individual who thinks it's about them rather than about God and others. Paul faces them up with it and he faces us up with it too. So then into verse 16, Paul then says, so I say. So given the reality of what will happen if you succumb to thinking that this is about you rather than about what God has done for you through Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I say to you then, walk by the Spirit. That means that you, everything you do, it's a, it's a turn of phrase that is describing your whole manner of life. Walk by the Spirit in his power and in his control. So he's, going, he's saying here then what genuine freedom through faith in Christ and the evidences of that actually look like. And he's taking us to see that we have to consciously choose the ways of God as helped by the Holy Spirit, rather than to succumb to the flesh and the attractions to live for ourselves. This is tough. It needs a transformation of the heart, and God can do that, but it requires our input too, and our willingness to allow God to do that. It's an active work of the Holy Spirit of God to transform us sinners, but he does that when the believer actively chooses to allow God to work in them. That's what the scriptures say to us. Peter is the one who says, and he was quoting the Old Testament, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, then, then you go after the things of God. That should be the natural 
response of the Christian. That God has started a work, as Paul says in Philippians, in you that he's going to complete. But the encouragement always comes that there must be in the life of the believer the willingness to pursue the things of God, but not in our own strength, by the power of the Holy Spirit. What is that going to require? It's going to require us to be in God's word, to see what his ways are. And it's going to require us to humbly and honestly, before God's word, fall on our faces and to ask him for the help of the Holy Spirit to live in the way that he has brought us into the freedom of. That's what God is getting at. In this section from 16 through to 18, Paul speaks honestly again, as he does in other places, about the real conflict that exists in us between the flesh, that nature that is bent away from God and enslaved to this desire to look good towards God and towards other people, and the Spirit who would set us free to serve God and to serve others. This conflict is there. And his encouragement to walk by the Spirit is to fall back onto him always. Knowing that he's present, he's always there. I'm trying this on my own strength, God. This is ridiculous. You're here and present. Please, I ask you to come and show your power and transform my heart for your glory. It's about behaviour training through personal discipline. People don't like the word discipline because often it speaks of telling somebody off. But discipline in the other sense is where you, you dedicate yourself to certain activities so that your behavior will change it's what people do all the time they get into a routine of something that's another word for it it's a routine but a discipline is a positive routine that you know is going to have a benefit over time that's why we must say with god that we must be in his word that we must as god says be relying on him in prayer and we do that individually and we sit there with God in his word and through prayer and communion with him. We do that individually, but it's absolutely vital that we do that together as a church as well. Because where is the unity going to be fostered if we're thinking that this Christianity, I can do this on my own or just with my partner? That's not what Jesus prayed for in John 17. It was about these people who had these disciplines personal in their lives, seeing the importance of it there, the outflow of that was for them to want to come together to share the same things in a richer way with other people in churches. James Montgomery Boyce, who's uh, another Bible teacher, he says that this experience of going through life of behavioral change is helped by the Holy Spirit. He says the flesh is to become increasingly subdued as the Christian learns by grace to walk by the Spirit. The Christian learns by grace to walk by the Holy Spirit. We don't deserve it. That's what grace is. But God has said, I'm there and I'll take you and you can walk with me. That's the promise. In verse 16, he says, uh, verse 18, sorry, he says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Just go, be led by him. You walk, but you follow. Submit yourself to the ways of God as he's shown in, your, in his word. And you take hold of him and take hold of his strength and his power and let him take you forward. Then he takes us into the next section, 19 to 21, which is this warning. 
which is really quite shocking. Because he takes those uh, characteristics or behaviours that we would often judge to be clear evidences of sinfulness. But alongside them, he's, he's saying that self-salvation religion is in the mix as well. His whole argument thus far, if you remember, was that succumbing to the flesh would be seen when people would want to adhere to the things of Judaism. And it might look good, and it might appear religious, but here he says the acts of the flesh are obvious. So he's equating that look good religiosity with a life where there is none of that, and people will just live it to freely indulge their sinful desires. And actually, if we're very careful with the text here, we see how he brings the two together. You'll notice that he mentions acts of the flesh and then he goes on to mention fruit of the spirit. Acts is, the, is something, it's work, it's where energy is expended to, to bring about a result. Whereas fruit, that normally just happens. There's that to think of. But Paul goes at four groups of actions here. Now look at these carefully. And let's not be judgmental. Now Paul is saying that, firstly there's a group first group which speaks of sexual sin and a brazen display of it. Oh, those are sinners. And then there's idol worship in the next group and sorcery or witchcraft as it's described. People involved with the occult. Now that's something that uh, we can be guilty of too. Let's not kid ourselves. Or we will put something in the place of God as our, pla- as our, as our trust. Uh, and we can tamper with things of the occult. It's very easy in our society to do that. But then look at the next group. It's a description of what some have said are societal evils. What, what are we talking about here? Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy. Hands up if you've never in the last even day had any of that. You see what Paul's doing? He's saying that those who were all about trying to be part of this group that demonstrated their super spirituality in a sense and their super religiosity were no better off from the people that they would look down their noses to. And the fourth group is uncontrolled living. Associated with alcohol, it's, that's the fourth group that's there. Notice what Paul, by the Spirit's help, what God has done. He's bringing together behaviours that come from hearts that are not transformed by grace. And it can be those who are brazenly opposed to God, but also those who think that they're actually embracing God when in fact, by their religiosity, they're rejecting him. That's a shocking thing for Paul to bring in at this point in the letter. That's a, that's a new awareness for me because we so often look at that in isolation but when you see it in the letter when Paul has been driving at this point don't adopt the things of Judaism because you're going to fall away from enjoying the freedom life. You're going to go back into the things where you think you're going to have to achieve this and you have to look good to other people. That's not what God wants for you in Christ. 
And he says, and don't kid yourselves that you're any better than people who would show in their lives and the evidences of their behaviour that they want nothing to do with God. Because actually you're doing the same. Another little warning here I think we need to be uh, aware of too. Is that maybe for some people they, they felt, and I, I fear this is prevalent today, that because they at one point have declared openly, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. They've said a form of words. That they believe then that they are saved. And that then gives them the license to do whatever they will with the rest of their lives. Because once saved, you're always saved. doesn't matter what you do. Paul goes at that hard too. And he's saying that a transformed heart that's transformed by the grace of God through faith in Christ alone is really going to show that it has changed. It's going to be evidenced. Because it will be the fruit that will come from the work of God in that person's life. So just to summarise this bit for me, um, Christ died to save us from brazen, but also masquerading displays of unrighteousness. Christ is the one who stands in the perfection of his life and in his death and in his resurrection and his ascension and in his being seated at the right hand of God. He is the one who stands for us to set us free from these tendencies to go back into wanting to achieve things for ourselves. Now, I shouldn't miss what's at the end of verse 21. This is important. Paul says that people who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we know that the Bible does teach that those who've put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are secured as God's people for eternity by the indwelling of the Spirit. So once saved, always saved, if you are genuinely saved. So this cannot be speaking about losing your salvation. And what he's saying is that a behaviour speaks of what the heart is. And he's saying that people who demonstrate this are probably indicating that they were never saved and they have no place in the future kingdom because that's the sense of the language, it's the future kingdom. But what we see throughout the New Testament, we don't have time to dive into this, is that there's a present reality of the kingdom of God as well. And the New Testament would show us that that's expressed in churches of God where people together come under the rule of God and say that they're going to live and let their transformed hearts be seen in their transformed actions in communities of churches that give glory to God. In Matthew 21, Jesus said to the rulers of the Jews, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And then in Luke 12, we're told, he said to his little group of disciples, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So it was those who were Christ followers who were being given the kingdom and that group was the apostles whose teaching then was the foundation of everything from Acts onwards. And we see that in the New Testament. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that there's no inheritance place for people who exhibit this behaviour in the future kingdom of God because it shows their hearts. He's laying this alongside other teaching that we have in other places. Um, we'd have to look at 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 and into Romans 8 as well and Ephesians 5 where it was clear that people lost their place in a church of God. 
they were disinherited of the privileges associated with being in the kingdom. So Paul's warning here is about that. So if you succumb in a moment, and some of those things are momentary lapses of sinfulness, where you're not trusting in God anymore, it can disqualify you from your place within the kingdom of God, where you're showing that your heart has been transformed by grace. But some of those in that list are long-standing behavioural characteristics that sometimes we're not so quick to deal with, but they have no place in God's kingdom. And that's when excommunication comes in. And excommunication in the New Testament is always with the view that the person, when they're put away, will be granted repentance by the Lord for what it is that they have done in the failure of their faith in a moment or over a period of time. And they come to repentance and then are restored back to fellowship again. Place in the kingdom of God. The fullness of that needs to be dealt with another time. I want us to finish though with Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Now, normally you would take days over this. <clears throat> but I just want to see what Paul is rising to. This life of freedom that is enjoyed through faith in Christ because he stands for us. That life is then empowered by the indwelling spirit. It's the fruit of the spirit. As Mounts, who's a uh, a Greek scholar, he says that the word means the natural product of something that is alive. So if you're alive in Christ, the natural product of your life that's walking by the Spirit as led by him is going to show this. What is it? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. We don't have time to get into each of those. But against the acts of the flesh, there is the fruit of the Spirit. I do believe that Paul intends us to see that it's, it's one group. It's a homogenous life. It's a life that is characterized by all of those. Now, you might come that back and say, well, there's a lot of people in the world who are not Christians who exhibit characteristics like that every day. Yes, but if you were to boil it down, be very careful here. What would be their motive? And I think that's the measure by which we need to see if God is doing the transforming work in our hearts as we would let him do it. Is the motive for showing love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, is it really for the benefit of others and for God? Or deep down, is it really for yourself? Is that how we can measure the reality of the transformation that God will work in us? Another commentator has said, "A vine does not produce group, uh, not groups. A vine does not produce grapes by acts of parliament. They are the fruit of the vine's own life, the fruit of the divine nature which God gives to us as a result of what is done in and by Christ." This should be a natural transformation that's seen in these evidences that is in the life of a genuine believer. As the Lord himself said in Matthew 7, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears good tr fruit. So the measure and the test maybe for us as we face God's word here 
is to see and look at the motive that underlies everything. I'm exhibiting these things because it's the Spirit that's transforming me so that I can exhibit these for God and for others. And it's just for them. Or is there something of me in there? I think we're all going to say there's something of me in there. That's because this work of God is an ongoing thing. But God will transform us over time for his glory. So my conclusion then is like us to, to see that this freedom is, is not something that then just allows us to do whatever we want with our lives. This freedom is to, a life that's then lived in the joy of God and for the joy of other people. And it's done through actively choosing to trust God's way as best. Even though there is this conflict, realising that that is real, but then resting and taking hold of God by his Holy Spirit's power to transform us, to become free like Jesus. I want to finish with a statement from Mark chapter 12 and verse 14 about the Lord Jesus. It says that they came to him the Jewish leaders, and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. There's a life that was lived by walking in the Spirit, led by the Spirit in the power of the Spirit. That doesn't mean disregard people. It meant that he was not swayed by what people thought of him. Who was his audience? For whom he lived, it was God. Should be the same for us. And God is within us to help us to live for his glory. Let's pray.